0: This is Politics and Media 101. I'm Jeff Browning. The United States is at a pivotal point in our history as a country, as a society, and as a political system. The idea of a sitting US president riling up an armed mob, steering them to the legislature and trying to overturn an election result is not something we ever expected to see here in the United States of America This week, the House of Representatives heard some stunning testimony from Cassidy Hutchinson, who was a top aide to President Trump's chief of staff, Mark Meadows, and who was in the room with Meadows in the White House on January 6th as the events were unfolding. The details she shared should be stunning for any American. Our very own John Gunnison and Justin Higgins sat down to talk about this testimony, what its overall impacts could be, including legal ramifications, and what it means for the country overall. To hear more past episodes, please visit our website, pm101.live. Please also take a second to subscribe on whichever streaming service you're using right now so you don't miss our next episode. Without any further ado, let's roll the tape. We are recording this right after
1: the latest impromptu Capitol Hill January 6th hearing about Trump's attempted coup. There's really a lot to get into because we've only done a preview of these hearings and we haven't looked at any of the hearings until now. And especially with this latest hearing, it's been the biggest revelations that I think we've had uh, until this point. A lot in the media, including John Dean even, are saying, in Woodward and Bernstein, folks that were intimately aware of and involved in Watergate in different capacities, they're saying this is the biggest Testimony in American history. I believe some are going as far to say that this is the biggest revelation of a coordinated attack on American democracy since the Civil War because Jefferson Davis was a sitting member of Congress. So it really does bring it all to a next level. Before getting into it, I will say this prior to these hearings, I really wasn't expecting a smoking gun. I wasn't expecting. Any ability to link the two events, and the two events in my mind, which I thought very well could have been linked, was the storming of the Capitol with the incitement done by President Trump, not only on January 6th, but the big lie in leading up to it. But today, I can honestly say my priors have been changed. The predictions I was thinking were, I think, are probably now wrong, and it was a groundbreaking hearing for a lot of reasons. What do you think, John? John?
2: You know, it's interesting, Justin, that you brought up John Dean and Bob Woodward and Carl Bernstein. It seems as though we're stuck in this comparison to Watergate, but it seems that we've really flown well past Watergate in terms of significance with the events that we're uncovering. I think that perhaps the comparison for Trump is no longer, if it ever really was Richard Nixon, but maybe more and more it's becoming John Tyler, a former U.S. president who actually served in the Confederate government and died a traitor to the United States. Um, It's seeming more and more like Tyler is perhaps a better comparison for Trump than Nixon. And what's even more extraordinary is that he directed more and more, apparently, this attack against the U.S. government while he was serving the office of the presidency, which is as extraordinary a betrayal of his oath and Of the integrity of the United States and the office, as one can even imagine. But let's kind of give a little bit more table setting for how exactly this particular hearing unfolded. The sequence of events was pretty interesting because there were a number of recent hearings, you know, that we were kind of preluding to in one of our earlier programs that all went as scheduled. Well, one of them got rescheduled by about a week. But uh, they told us that they were going to stop the hearings until July. And then, Last night, they announced suddenly that they were going to have a surprise hearing. I think that was what you mentioned when you said it was an impromptu hearing. And, you know, I was kind of wondering about this, if it was strategic. Uh, It seems that it was certainly successful as a promotional method because it got people very interested in who the speaker was going to be and what was going to be said. I know that some speculation was running a bit wild. I I saw people on the internet that were speculating it was going to be the former Supreme Court Justice Anthony Kennedy that was going to be appearing, which seemed a bit far-fetched. And then, of course, there was speculation that it could be Pat or or Mark Meadows or John Eastman or others that the committee members had directly spoken to during the hearings and sort of beseeched their testimony. It turned out that it was a quite young staffer named Cassidy Hutchinson. And Jess, I know that you were working in the GOP on the House around the time that her career was kind of developing. I'm wondering if you ever had any ra- interaction with her or uh, worked with people that work with her, if you knew her a little bit by reputation. No, I,
1: I did know quite a few people in the White House, whether it be from the RNC or Capitol Hill, whether it be folks that Mark Meadows brought over from his personal office. Over to the White House. I had no idea who this person was. Uh, she's clearly young. She's now 26. So she was probably just starting her career out. I think she had three, almost three years in the White House when this was all happening. And the way that I took it, she's a special assistant. I think that she was more of a gatekeeper. So, obviously, she wasn't somebody that had policy chops or strategy chops. She was somebody that was in the ear of Mark Meadows and maybe one of the last people uh, to get information across from him. She was also one of the people, as it was described by others who worked in the White House, that was working directly with, for example, communications and legislative staff that were trying to track the president's movements to get in touch with him because that's how in the loop she was. She was also telling the other staffers what events were happening, where Trump was going next. Next, And then finally, she was somebody that had the phone numbers of all of the Republican, most of the Republican congressional leadership, and they were on a first name basis with her. So this was not somebody that, although being maybe akin to a secretary, this is a secretary who is has a finger on the pulse is really integral to the movements of everything, and witnessed the Disgusting wind up to and events uh, leading through January 6th in a firsthand manner, uh, John. So it's not somebody who was outside the loop and just commenting, guessing on things.
2: You know, it's kind of funny to describe Cassie Hutchinson as a gatekeeper because she was the assistant to the COS, the chief of staff, whose function and position is often described himself as a gatekeeper. Right. I remember Colonel Lawrence Wilkerson uh, telling me about you know his experiences in George Bush's National Security Council and saying that John Sanuno's role as the chief of staff was as the ultimate gatekeeper. And that was why he was so important, because he determined who got to speak to the president and who got to communicate what kind of messages to him, which, of course, influenced the decisions of the most powerful person on Earth. So if Kathy Hutchinson was a gatekeeper to the gatekeeper, it's another uh, level of coordination and access and integralness into this entire machine. I suppose that you could perhaps say that her role might have been something similar to being a fly on the wall, right? Because she was present, if not a protagonist, during so many important meetings and was in the room when so many of these things were happening. She was witness to so much without herself being necessarily one of the key principles in any of these situations. So she was able to absorb and observe so many significant events without maybe too many people in the American public certainly having an idea of who she was. Uh, She was involved in the coordination between the White House Counsel's Office and the Oval Office, between members of the National Security Council and the Oval Office, between members of Congress and the Oval Office through their legislative outreach, which Mark Meadows was quite involved in as a former member of Congress serving as a COS. So she witnessed a lot of these key connections that were so important to us trying to figure out exactly how this all unfolded and how the different pieces fit together.
1: Yes. And what they've served to do is the first hearing outlined the violence that we saw. It was really going through tick-tock of events where you had Capitol Police Hill officers testifying that were grievously injured. Uh, and They were basically showing that this was not a peaceful protest. This was not Antifa like a lot of the Republican Party's the liars, the members of Congress who are whitewashing this issue would like to claim, and that uh, a lot of the police officers were brutally beaten. The next one, I believe, went into the big lie and set the table for what was going on behind the scenes in that regard and this hearing John, it really did put both of these together. So I think we should start out with some of the key points that were brought up in this hearing because Cassidy Hutchinson is akin to being a body person for a member of Congress or a, you know a cabinet member they're they're usually always with the the principal so in this case Mark Meadows um, and they're sitting right outside their office when meetings are going on um, she was at the speech, that Trump gave on January 6th. Now, you have Republicans like Marjorie Taylor Greene, you have Republicans, like some of our listeners from, from our Clubhouse show, uh, saying, don't worry about January 6th, I'm sick of hearing about it, because they didn't believe that Trump was necessarily inciting violence on the 6th with his speech. Uh, it became abundantly clear that he was, though. January 6th committee believes that he's probably inciting violence with his speech and really revving up the rhetoric.
2: Hold on. Before we go any further, I just want to make a point of clarification about the term incitement. So incitement can mean a couple different things. There's incitement as a criminal matter, as a legal matter. And this is very specifically defined and the threshold for proving and determining it is very, very high because of the First Amendment. You need to show uh, a number of things that are very, very difficult to prove in order to determine that incitement as a legal criminal matter has occurred. It's extremely rare in the criminal justice context for that to ever be determined in a courtroom. There's also incitement as a moral matter. And we as members of the American public, as voters, as thinkers about public events, are in a position to evaluate that on terms that not entirely the ones that would be used in a criminal context, right? So it's different for us to say that we believe that Donald Trump has committed criminal incitement than it is for us to make the clear judgment of what occurred here is incitement as we understand it, which is to say he's responsible for the events that occurred. It doesn't have to do with us trying to evaluate case law to make that judgment. And I've said this before, but I think that a trap that we often get into uh, when we're trying to evaluate the moral, ethical, conduct of Donald Trump and his associates is to think about things only in terms of criminal statute. It's not our responsibility as voters to make those determinations. It's for us to make value judgments. And it's not the responsibility of the congressional committee to make those determinations either. They're not a criminal investigatory body. They are a legislative congressional body. So I just want to make that distinction between those different categories of incitement. When we say incitement, we're not necessarily talking about it in a criminal sense.
1: No, and I was not talking about it in a criminal sense. I was talking about it as any person with a brain that's not a patsy Republican Party partisan, somebody that's just trying to ignore January 6th, if they listened to the speech without any January 6th testimony... They listen to his speech and then they see the results of the speech and the leading up to the speech even with the big lie. It's incitement. That was his intent. That was what the result was. I'm not saying we can improve it in a court of law. Now, I will say that I feel confident. We can get into this later, John. I feel very extremely confident now that there could be a case brought against the president for willfully obstructing the official business. But we can get into that later, and at least I think he'd be indicted with a grand jury based on the evidence we have now, and I know that it's in the preliminary stages of the investigation, so let's just shelve that. But what I think was very important, and we'll try and go chronologically because a lot was said, is we heard reports that after Trump gave the speech, and he said this in his speech, that he wanted to march to the Capitol. And that's just crazy. He's he's going to take this charged mob where you have Rudy Giuliani on stage saying we need trial by combat. You have Mo Brooks on stage saying stuff that's so ridiculous that he ended up winding up asking for a pardon uh, on behalf of the stuff he said. Trump, again, condemning U.S. Congress, condemning Democrats for stealing the election. And then pointing the mob at at Mike Pence. And this guy's plan was to take that mob on a march or in his car over to the Capitol. Potentially, and we heard this from from Cassidy. We heard this from numerous witnesses in the January 6th hearing. But we heard this firsthand from Cassidy that this was a plan days out before January 6th, where Pat Cipollone, the White House chief counsel, was speaking with her, begging her, begging this 25-year-old, probably at the time 24-year-old, to talk to Mark Meadows and get Mark Meadows to prevent the president from going from the place where he gave the speech, walking all the way to the Capitol, because if they did, they would be charged with crimes. So if we're understanding everything that took place, I think today's testimony, because she was firsthand in a lot of this, really does link that there was a legitimate plan for Trump to whip up the mob, which it is a mob, and then walk them over to the Capitol with himself or drive them over to the Capitol. I think that is a huge piece of material that we cannot overlook.
0: new bombshell testimony, alleging that on the day of the January 6th insurrection, former President Donald Trump said he didn't care that his supporters had weapons. Cassidy Hutchinson, a top aide to Trump's chief of staff, Mark Meadows, told the House Select Committee investigating the deadly Capitol riot that Trump was furious his rally on the ellipse didn't appear to be at maximum capacity. Hutchinson testifying under oath that the president was angry security magnetometers were being used on his supporters and that the Secret Service was turning away anyone with weapons I was in the vicinity of a conversation where I overheard the president say something to the effect of you know I, I don't effing care that they have weapons they're not here to hurt me take the effing mags away Hutchinson also recalling a physical altercation with a Secret Service agent on January 6th after Trump insisted on driving to the Capitol the president said something to the effect of I'm the effing president take me up to the Capitol now the president Reached up towards the front of the vehicle to grab at the steering wheel. Mr. Engel grabbed his arm, said, sir, you need to take your hand off the steering wheel. We're going back to the West Wing. We're not going to the Capitol.
2: I agree with you, Justin. That was probably the biggest surprise to me out of the hearing that we heard today. After witnessing Donald Trump as a public figure for a decade plus and as a political figure for about half of that, I still find myself surprised quite often at the depths of depravity. My estimation of his character is so low that I can't imagine that I could possibly be surprised by anything that he's done or shocked, but I find myself still in that position. The sequence of events, as I previously understood it, was so bad. I understood that he had sicked this mob against the U.S. Capitol, sending the foot soldiers to their peril while he took the car back and ate a cheeseburger and watched it on television. Hands off. Yeah, it's it's bad enough. I mean, it reflects terribly on him enough that he's sending these foot soldiers as cannon, cannon fodder while he watches with pleasure from a distance and that he had misled them into thinking he'd be joining them promised them uh, immunities and pardons and, and so on you know this is a pattern with him as he sends the little people off to do his bidding and suffer while he sits on a cloud i thought that that was what had occurred but it seems that the reality is indeed even worse that he was hoping to actively join and participate in the violence i think that the thing that was probably the headline for many people was the story relayed by Cassie Hutchinson that Trump had lunged at a Secret Service agent who refused to drive his vehicle towards the Capitol.
1: Before we get into that, I think it's important to note that There was, I agree with you, John, everything you just said. I thought he was eating his cheeseburger. Nothing wrong with that. I like my McDonald's and maybe a Diet Coke every once in a while. Maybe not as much as Trump does. But he was eating his cheeseburger after giving a speech and he was going back thinking he'd whip them up and, you know, we'll we'll just roll the dice and they may fall where they may. What we learned, though, and this is shocking, is we all knew about this war room in the Willard with Steve Bannon, with Roger Stone where they were kind of the, quote unquote, brains. I think Rudy Giuliani was involved in that war. They were kind of the brains of this operation. And I use that term very loosely and in a metaphorical sense. So you had the head of this operation, the Willard, and they were corresponding with the Proud Boys. They were corresponding with the Oath Keepers, two two groups that I believe have been charged with seditious conspiracy. We also learned, um, as part of this potential coordination with Trump, that Mark Meadows was on a conference call with the Willard, with these people on January 5th, prior to January 5th, Donald Trump was saying after the speech, he's going to walk to the Capitol. Um, so all the way through, uh, through January 5th, now we know that there was this plan from the Willard, from the Oath Keepers, from the Proud Boys. They were going to try and obstruct the official justice of business of Congress by going in and creating the storming of the Capitol. We know that the Willard was kind of the headquarters for organizing the protests on the 6th which was in contact with the Oath Keepers and the Proud Boys. Now we know that Mark Meadows was directly linked to the group of people that potentially were leading the seditious conspiracists in the Proud Boys and the Oath Keepers. And that was another bombshell. So I guess where my mind goes is it's very obviously that Trump was involved. We may not be able to prove it, but I think that the Willard with Meadows and Trump, that that's really the nexus of Trump believing that he needed to whip them up and then also walk them over and potentially go to the House floor himself to extract as much destruction and potential blood as possible.
2: Yeah. So just before uh, I begin, I just want to mention, I've actually saved the Willard Hotel and a fun bit of trivia for any of our listeners is, I don't know how many people know this, but the origin of the term lobbying actually has to do with the Willard Hotel because policy advocates... Back, you know, many decades ago, would wait in the lobby of the uh, Willard Hotel, hoping that they'd run into members so they could try to convince of some policy matter or another. So,
1: and I've been to those policy events at the Willard. They're called pack (laughs) dinners.
2: It's unfortunately it's not named after the late great Fred Willard, some other gentleman named Willard. But anyway, um, just to your point, Justin, some of the details that we learned that demonstrate that there was prior knowledge of potential or even likely violence are some of the most compelling pieces of evidence that we've heard so far that the violence against the Capitol was actually willful on the part of these protagonists. So a couple things that I heard in the hearing today that I want to mention in that regard, and I apologize if I've got any of the smallest details incorrectly because we've only just watched the hearing and, and just watched on television without the benefit of a research team here to collect any of the notes. But a couple of things that stood out to me. Number one, was I believe that it was Rudy Giuliani who told Cassidy Hutchinson, and please correct me if I've got any of this incorrect, that on January 6th, they were expecting that Trump would be going to the Capitol, in the Capitol, and that he would look strong and it was going to be a glorious day. He said something like that to Cassidy Hutchinson ahead of the attack, ahead of the event. So there was already the idea that he was going to enter the Capitol, perhaps with the crowd, and that it would look strong. You know, these people's idea of what strength is, is something that we can unpack some other time. But their idea of what is strong has often been demonstrated to be some show of force or, or violence.
1: When Rudy Giuliani said that, Cassidy Hutchinson uh, turned to Mark Meadows and explained what Rudy Giuliani just said. And Mark Meadows responded, uh, yeah, the, six of the, ch- the January 6th has a chance of being very, very bad. So sorry, I just wanted to add that for color.
2: Yes. Yeah. Again, significant. So they had prior knowledge of the risk of violence on the day. Another piece of evidence that's very significant is the story of the way that Trump responded when he was told that there were rioters bringing dangerous weapons, including firearms, including AR-15 semi-automatic rifles to Washington. So they had set up security around the ellipse in the national mall as a protective measure where people were being checked for weapons and these weapons were being confiscated and trump was told by these security officers who were overseeing all of this that a large number of people who were interested in attending could not attend they had chosen not to because they did not want to have their weapons confiscated
1: so, so real quick, the, the visually, I don't know how I'm going to do this, but wherever you are, maybe look at your phone. Uh, the top part of your phone is the stage. And then right below that, halfway through your phone to the top part of your phone is where they set up the arena for people to come in and listen and watch. And what happened was basically the middle section became filled up, but there were wings in this uh, allotted area where people could stand that were empty. Behind that area was a bunch of people, thousands of people uh, that were just waiting outside. They could still see the stage. They could still hear the stage, but it wouldn't fill in the area because to get into that area, they needed to go through a security where the security guards were using a wand, a magnetometer, which is called, I think, throughout the hearing, a mag, to ultimately screen them for knives, sticks, metal sticks, guns.
2: And those are the people that, that did not want to go through that security. So the way that Trump responded when he was told that there were people carrying dangerous weapons who had an interest in attending the rally, but couldn't because they were heavily armed, was to request that the security remove these mags and allow the people carrying weapons to carry them into the ellipse, into the vicinity of the National Mall quite close to the Capitol, the group that he was assembling, who he was going to instruct to then march on the Capitol. He was told that this group of people were carrying dangerous, deadly weapons. And his interest was in taking extraordinary counter security steps to allow them and indeed encourage them to carry those weapons into his crowd, which he was then intending to lead to the US Capitol. And he said to the security officer who's overseeing all of this, I don't care if they have weapons. They're not here to harm me. I, the, you know, dot, 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 right? The intuitive question then is, who were they there to harm? <laughs> exactly, exactly. It seems as though there is an understanding that these people intended to do harm and had the means to do so. And that was something that he was interested in encouraging. You know, I'm going to return to one of my hobby horses here, and you probably know where I'm going with this, especially people who have heard some of our other recent episodes. But it does appear as though gun control uh, perhaps saved the U.S. constitutional system because the group of people that attacked the Capitol might indeed have been even more heavily armed and dangerous. We know that they had interest in harming lawmakers and trying to obstruct and intrude on the peaceful transfer of power. If it had not been for some of the security protocols that were in place, people carrying these kinds of uh, long rifles, AR-15s, they might have been assembling in this mob that attacked the Capitol. So it does appear as though some of these security measures, the gun control, if you would like to use a popular term or phrase, might have indeed saved the Republic. Well, and this is a
1: discussion for another day, but I I wonder if Lindsey Graham after the storming of the Capitol isn't even more prescient now, where he said he wished warning shots were fired. And ultimately, these people were not allowed to storm the Capitol. And, and Bernie Sanders apparently uh, agreed behind uh, closed doors. So I just wonder if if the use of force metrics are going to be updated by the Capitol Police.
2: Well, certainly, let's just say that seems to be quite a strong difference of opinion between Senator Graham and the former President Trump, doesn't it? Uh, if Graham was <laughs> interested in scaring away or uh, in any other way, discouraging heavily armed people from marching the Capitol. That is something that um, a sentiment that he does not share with the former president who, as we said, seek to encourage them to do so.
1: So let's just reset real quick. President Trump thinks he's going to give this speech and then go to storm the Capitol with the protesters. He thought in this hearing, we heard that he was going to either walk or drive to the Capitol, uh, then potentially give another speech God forbid what he would even say at that point, because they're all ripped, roaring, ready to go. And then there were reports from the hearing that he might even walk to the House floor. God forbid it could have been bad. On the other hand, you have this 24-year-old girl, right? She's right out of college, like two years out of college. This has to be one of her first or second jobs, being pressured by the chief White House counsel. Pat Cipollone, to convince her despondent, spineless, there's so many uh, adjectives and adverbs I could use to describe Mark Meadows, felonous, which will likely be the case, boss, to prevent Trump from marching on the Capitol. As Trump's giving his speech, he still believes he's going to march on the Capitol. He says it in his speech that he's going to march on the Capitol. Speaker Kevin McCarthy says, he hears this. He says, what the fuck? What did he just say? He calls this twenty four year old girl, who's this secretary essentially for the chief of staff, and he starts yelling at her. What? President, you promised me President Trump was not going to come to the Capitol, and, and Cassidy Hutchinson saying that uh, <laughs> Kevin McCarthy, the the sorry majority leader, a um, uh, minority leader rather at the time, was upset that President Trump is going to disobey this 24-year-old and, and march to the Capitol. So so that's what's happening. The crowd gets whipped up to a fever. Trump then leaves the stage. And then what happens allegedly, so he leaves the speech and he, he gets into the suburban, it's not the beast, but it's the armored vehicle that is more of a suburban. And what he does is he thinks he's going to march on the Capitol. Violence has already broken out at this point they are about to breach the the Capitol and go into restricted areas uh, of Congress. Uh, and I'm sure Trump is aware of it. His Secret Service members tell him, no, you can't do this. Uh, it's not safe. Trump gets angry. He protests again. the The head of the White House Secret Service security detail says, no, you cannot do that. Trump lunges at him, throws his arm away, and the gentleman puts his arm back and says, no, you cannot do this. Then Trump lunges at the gentleman uh, driving the car and grabs the steering wheel. And then they say, Mr. President, we are going back to the White House. So in sum, Trump believed after the speech, while the Capitol was being stormed, that he was still going to be able to march on the Capitol with his fellow terrorists, his freaks, his proud boys, his Oath Keepers, his Roger Stones, his Steve Bannons, the people that you really just don't ever want to associate yourself with. And what stopped him from doing that and had he done that, the violence would have been much worse. It would have been much worse. The people that brought their guns probably would have felt empowered to use them because the permission structure would have been there. Uh, there's no telling at, at where this would have ended and what would have happened. But at the end of the day, the Secret Service prevented President Trump from basically committing his Beer Hall putsch in person. They drove him back to the White House.
2: And in the process, they potentially were assaulted by the president. I think that The Beer Hall Putsch is almost exactly what did happen, right? Because the Beer Hall Putsch was failed. It was a failed coup. But Hitler was there, right? Yeah, well, I mean, and so was Trump.
1: Well, Trump didn't go into the Capitol. Hitler was in the Beer Hall Putsch. Sometimes the
3: smallest moments in history can have the biggest impact. One true story that could have changed the entire world was the time that Hitler took over a beer hall and almost died. That time Hitler took over a beer hall and almost died. It was 1923, and Germany was a disaster. There was hyperinflation, civil war, communists. In the midst of this, a lost young military veteran and high school dropout named Adolf was looking for purpose. He stumbled upon a party of angry men, and with delusions of overthrowing the German Republic, he hatched a plan, a coup d'etat that would begin in a Munich beer garden. The coup, or putsch, was quickly squashed. Police fired upon Nieder. Bullets missed, killing the man next to him instead. This should have been the end of the road for troubled young Adolf. Instead, the pathetic uprising made Adolf a national celebrity. A civilized country embraced hateful ideas. The cult of Hitler was born. He received a short prison sentence, and while in his celebrity jail cell, he wrote Mein Kampf. The man no one took seriously was now poised to take over the world. This all could have been different. Hitler could have been hung for treason or shipped back to Austria in disgrace. And what if the government bullet had hit? Would there have been no Nazi Germany? Would there have been no Third Reich? Would there have been no World War II? Imagine the world that could have been.
1: During the second hearing, they were going over the big lie, and there were theories of what happens if the business got delayed and and Pence didn't actually carry it out. So if you draw that to its logical conclusion, where with the constitutional challenge and the ambiguity, what happens if these rioters, these terrorists actually do kill? Vice President Pence, and do kill Nancy Pelosi and members of Congress, and then you don't have enough to get to the 270 to certify the election. Like, like There's so many questions about what happens in that instance. Does Trump call, say, okay, this is a terrorist attack. We need martial law. And does he try and use the military to gain control? I don't know what, what happens.
2: Yeah. Well, if we're talking about the military, I mean- It gets real bad real fast. Something that I've continually raised in some of our questions, experts and stuff is, what exactly was going on at the Pentagon in the months in between the election and the attack in the Capitol. So if we compare the Pentagon to the DOJ, in one of the previous hearings, we heard about how the acting leadership of the DOJ threatened simultaneous mass resignations um, as a way of preventing or deterring Trump from carrying out illegal anti-constitutional acts. There were people who were in place in those positions, the acting AG, Jeffrey Rosen, the deputy acting AG, who was Mr. Donahue, former military lawyer. Also, um, I believe he was at uh, Office of Legal Counsel Steve Engel. Uh, there was Eric Hirschman, who was another legal advisor. There was a the White House Counsel's Office, including White House Counsel Pat Cipollone and one of the deputies, Pat Philbin. All of those people threatened to immediately resign if you carried out these acts. Some of them, I just to clarify, weren't at DOJ, but were also in these legal functions. Also, the U.S. attorneys, there's a question that there might be a mass resignation of U.S. attorneys. So we had leadership at the DOJ that were willing to take these kinds of steps in order to refuse orders. It's not really clear exactly what was going on at the Pentagon and how the principles of the Pentagon would have behaved in these circumstances, partly because of the purge that happened at the Pentagon after the election. And the people that were placed into the key civilian leadership positions at the Pentagon. And I'm thinking in particular of a notorious staffer named Kasha Patel, someone who was intimately involved in a lot of the most nefarious activities of the administration, in particular during the Ukraine impeachment, saga, and a few other things. And he was put as the chief of staff to the acting secretary of defense, who was Christopher Miller. There was a number of other people who put into top positions at that time, including Anthony Tata, Ezra Cohen. Uh, I believe Michael Ellis was another gentleman. In any normal administration, you would think that the people in the DOD would be
1: loyal to the Constitution over all else. But because of the purges that had gone on and the potential threatening of resigning if this hooey happened, we don't know what would have happened ultimately at the end of the day.
2: Yeah, yeah, it, it, that's that's the thing, I and mean, like what we found throughout this entire experience is that it is sometimes surprising who will do the right thing and who won't. For example, Steve Engel, who is someone that I just mentioned, who was at Office of Legal Counsel, he was someone who was involved in some of the most controversial decisions of the Trump administration and defended a lot of acts that people believed could have been the final straw, that were beyond the pale, things during the Ukrainian impeachment, other extraordinary policy matters. He seemed like he was one of the furthest reaching, most extreme people in the administration. And he threatened to resign uh, if uh, Trump put Jeffrey Clark in charge of the Justice Department and tried to use the Justice Department to interfere in the election. Uh, Another one, John Radcliffe. So John Radcliffe, he was the DNI at the time of January 6th, the Director of National Intelligence.
1: A former extreme right-wing member of the House Freedom Caucus of Congress, so the Tea Party yeah. MAGA wing, like like he he to the point where I believe he lied on his resume, yeah, and yeah. therefore could not get a Senate confirmed position because they didn't think he had the integrity <laughs> to, yeah. to be appointed. So
2: he was one of the chief attack dogs inside of Congress during the first impeachment, and just like you said, Justin, he was revealed to have lied about his credentials when Trump nominated him to be the DNI the first time. He had exaggerated his role as the acting US attorney at one of the US attorney's office in Texas saying that he had tried terrorism cases and so on. When he actually hadn't, he was just warming a seat for a few months as the acting interim US attorney in between presidential appointments had no role in any terrorism cases. No need to embellish that either, right? Like That's just dumb. Just a bad person. Yeah. So They couldn't bring him up to a vote because there wasn't support. The only reason he got to become DNI was because they had to bring him up to a vote a second time And it was because they filled the DNI position with a person named Rick Grinnell, someone who was even worse than. (laughs) Yeah, someone even worse than Radcliffe. And they showed, oh, you think Radcliffe's going to be bad? We've put an escaped mental asylum patient (laughs) in the office of DNI. For acting. See? For acting. Why don't you go ahead and confirm? Radcliffe, because otherwise we're stuck with a guy who is in a straitjacket from a rubber room on every other day of the week. And, and and just, he was single-handedly working overtime to undermine
1: our relationship with not only Germany when he was the ambassador, but basically all of Europe.
2: This guy did so much harm to our national security. Anyways, this is an entire <laughs> another conversation. But the point is that Radcliffe, Was eventually put into the office of DNI because the Senate voted him a second time just to get out of the Grinnell disaster. But he was someone else who we thought was one of the crazy lunatic people in the administration. And he stood up to try to do the right thing in this moment. You know, it it is sometimes surprising who the people are going to be that are going to show courage and who are not. And I think that, you know, it's a character revealing experience. We're able to look at some of these people and say, you know, we thought that you were a credible person and you failed us. We're able to see who's weak and strong willed, who has good moral foundation and who doesn't. I mean, some of the people who have debased themselves the most during the Trump years were people who were previously held in pretty high regard publicly. The mayor of New York City is the most obvious example of Rudolph Giuliani, but also Michael Flynn, who was an Obama appointee to be the head of Defense Intelligence Agency. He's someone who today, you know, we look at completely differently because of the actions that he took in these situations. And I think that kind of brings us back to how we start all of this, which is that this key witness, the person who showed so much bravery and courage and revealed some of the worst abuses uh, and helped really open up this case, was someone who was not known to the public, was quite inexperienced, and whose career experience was mostly a series of associations with figures that we don't hold in very high regard. People like Mark Meadows and Ted Cruz. you know. But she has proven that she is a person of integrity. And I think that it is pretty interesting to look back on this and see what it's revealed about all of these key people that were in positions of leadership, who will do the right thing and who won't.
1: And I have, because of my personal history, which you all know, switching from the Republican Party to the Democratic Party after getting to the RNC, which is usually the goal for people at various levels in Congress is to get over the RNC. I have just utter disdain for a lot of these people. Mick Mulvaney, for example, is a CBS contributor. Elisa Farah, she's a CNN contributor, resigned in December. I almost universally think that you are weak-willed if you stayed through the administration, if you went from the administration back to work for people like some of the scumbags in the Senate, like the real ones, like Ted Cruz, for example. But I will say, understanding that this woman, young woman, is only 26 years old, understanding that, for example, Pat Cipollone has refused to testify, Mike Pence has refused to testify, Mark Meadows is just a blatant felon at this point. He's going to be a felon, very likely, at this point. He won't testify. This woman showed extreme bravery. Nobody was willing to tell the truth. The United States public needed somebody to come forward who could tie these pieces together and also put pressure on some of the other people that she named in her testimony to come forward. And she did it. She just basically put her potential career in the GOP, which she did want to have GOP politic political aspirations after leaving the Trump world. She lit it on fire. She poured gasoline on it. That's gone. The Trump crime syndicate down at Mar-a-Lago is trying to undermine her by saying, oh, well, after this all happened, she wanted to stay close at Trump world. Folks, you got to realize if you're in politics, if uh, you're young, if this is all that you know, if you had access to the president, that's totally normal. That doesn't mean that she felt it was okay. But when she needed to step up and make a decision... She just sat for two hours on national television. You don't think she's getting death threats from the MAGA world, Steve Bannon types. Um, So I do want to say that like, I'm very rigid, rigidly opposed against these GOP figures normally. The worst of the worst, not all of them, but Cassidy Hutchinson deserves praise. So I just wanted to highlight that, John.
2: I just want to mention quickly, we're talking about people who did show bravery and forthrightness in these situations. I want to point to one more example of someone who didn't. And that's someone who exercised extraordinary power in the White House and the administration throughout the entirety of the Trump presidency. Someone who was always willing and interested in inserting himself into the business of the day. Someone who insisted- I thought you were going to talk about his wife. <laughs> oh, well, that was someone who barely exists. This person uh, insisted on wedging himself into every important matter- But when all of this was going on, was completely missing in action, very willingly, much more focused on setting up an investment deal from the Saudi PIF. And that is Mr. Jared Kushner, someone who um, does not seem to have cast a very long shadow or wielded a very significant profile during these extraordinary events, uh, which I think reflects certainly on his priorities and his commitment to the United States. In regard to Cassie Hutchinson and the way that she's conducted herself, And whatever career ambitions might have been, whatever the sequence of her decisions, something that I think that we should acknowledge is that it's very possible for a person to have a moment of moral clarity at at any point during this sequence. This young woman may have been interested in working for Trump after January 6th. Maybe it was only in the last few months that she was able to grapple and recognize the significance of what she'd witnessed. Maybe it was only after watching the first series of public hearings. Was she able to piece all of this together? Maybe it was only after speaking to legal counsel. Maybe it was only after speaking to friends and family members. Maybe it was only after understanding some of the legal risks of not acting. I'm not sure. But people sometimes can only come to this kind of clarity in their own timeline The important thing is that they do so, isn't it? Uh, I remember during the Ukraine impeachment, I mean, this is not an apples to apples example.
1: No, because like he almost killed half of Congress, for example, on
2: January 6th. Indeed. Well, what I was going to say was that one of the witnesses who was a key witness was the uh, US ambassador to the European Union, Gordon Sondland. And he appeared publicly in hearings, testimony, and he you know, denied most of the charges against Trump's conduct and sort of covered for Trump. But it was after he had been exposed by other witness testimony that he decided that it was proper for him to go and testify again and acknowledge everything that he witnessed. Was it bravery? Was it fear of legal exposure? I'm not sure. But people make decisions on how to approach these things, sometimes at different times. I don't think that he probably made that decision for the same reasons that Cassidy Hutchinson did. But I'm pointing to that also because I don't want us to preclude the fact that some other witnesses who have so far been uncooperative might decide to make a different decision. I mean, it's very possible that people like John Eastman or Mark Meadows might decide that it actually is appropriate for them to change their approach and to offer some kind of evidence that will be useful for the historical record, for prosecutions, for the public understanding of events. I, we shouldn't close the door on that. Um, it's possible that as more and more revelations come up, more and more exposure on these kind of figures appears, and they've tried to game out the way that others are going to interact with them. Whether they're going to defend them, whether they're going to cast them to the wolves, so to speak, that could influence their decision to participate.
1: And I think that's very important. And, and like you said, I think that Cassidy Hutchinson's motivations, without knowing her from Eve, that they're probably good. And I don't care when when she uh, ultimately decided to make this decision. It, it's unequivocally a patriotic decision. I do want to talk about. Mark Meadows and where we are going forward. So Denver Riggleman, a former congressman, moderate from Virginia, who is a special advisor to the January 6th committee. He was speaking and it's, it's all over Twitter, but basically he said that Cassidy Hutchinson was just the bridge to the future and we have seen nothing yet. So, so he's basically setting up the expectations that, uh, this is all thought out and planned by the committee and we're going to see more. And if you watched her testimony today, they were very, very careful to be very, very focused on just a couple things. Stuff she heard before the speech, and then stuff she heard after the speech. That was it, and I'm sure she testified on a lot of different things, um, but there will be other witnesses that, that come forward. I do want to say, though, when we talk about the right wing, I'm thinking Jim Jordan, Marjorie Taylor Greene, Lauren Boebert. For example, my former boss Tim Heelskamp, Justin Amash, who was in Congress, Mark Meadows, this is the Freedom Caucus. So these are the rabble rousers. These are the extreme wing of the right wing of the caucus. The folks that I'm talking about are the Lauren Boeberts, Marjorie Tilgren, Thomas Massey, the guy who hired me was his chief of staff. So these folks, I talk about them as a monolith, but they're really not. So you have you can break it up in a lot of different ways, but ultimately here's what it is. You have the folks that are extreme, bombastic, acerbic, that ultimately believe in what they're saying. So like Justin Amash, who was a libertarian, he would vote a certain way. He wouldn't do it for power. My former boss, Tim Heelskamp, crazy conservative views, but he actually believed a lot of this stuff. Thomas Massey, I legitimately believe that he is freaky enough and he believes it. Marjorie Taylor Greene, Lauren Boebert. Then you have folks like Mark Meadows. And Mick Mulvaney, while they were, and Jim Jordan, in a lot of instances, while they were the head of the Freedom Caucus, they were not true believers. They were so spineless that they would do whatever it takes to gain favor with a different faction, to do something that they could then call in later as a favor. Ultimately, their whole perspective was moving up the ladder. And we heard this with Mark Meadows um, in the testimony where they different days. They were saying he would tell one person this about January 6th. He'd tell another person this. He'd tell people what they wanted to hear. and, And he had real no acumen, no grasp on the things. So this is all to say that if there's anybody. And and it seems like they're really lining him up for some serious indictments moving forward. But if there is anybody that would potentially flip on President Trump It is Mark Meadows, because as you remember, he initially gave all of his information over to the January 6th committee, Trump got mad, he recanted. He published a book with things that Trump was saying publicly, Trump got mad, he said, oh no, this wasn't true. In his own book, he said the stuff that he published wasn't true. So my bet on this is, if they do get the goods, if they do charge him and he's facing 10 or 20 years in prison, he will 100% flip, and I think that that's something to watch, John.
2: Yeah, I'm interested in talking about the legal ramifications, the potential avenues for prosecution. I think maybe we'll do that in a different show. I don't think we really have time to do a thorough job on that yet. But I just want to respond to a couple of things that you mentioned. I mean, talking about the Freedom Caucus, it is interesting when you remember the actual narrative and sequence of events. When Trump was first running in the presidential primaries in 2015, 2016, these figures were not keen to endorse him. They were some of the holdouts for a lot of time uh, for embracing him as the nominee. The, the first people who embraced Trump was a mismatch. Jeff Sessions and Mo Brooks. Well, yeah, Sessions from the Senate. But on the House side, it was funny enough, it was two that ended up getting criminally indicted. Oh, the New Yorker. Yeah. Yeah, Chris Collins and then Duncan Hunter, neither of whom were associated, as far as I know, with the Freedom Caucus. They are just bad people, frankly. Just birds
1: of criminal, <laughs> criminals?
2: <laughs> yeah, yeah. They, they recognized in Trump a certain uh, style and approach that they were very fond of. I mean, these are people who are interested in government, not for public service, but for frankly, kleptocratic purposes. And that was something that they shared with the figure that they were the very first ones to endorse. But like I said, the whole Trump experience has been very character revealing. And these figures who found themselves ideologically at odds with Trump during that process ended up being some of the biggest defenders of Trump, in part because of uh, their own character and their own lack of a real moral compass. Um, It just revealed a lot about them. The thing that I want to say about Meadows, and you actually raised something very important, uh, an observation that I'm interested in kind of leaping on. And this is one of my other hobby horses that I think you're familiar with, but it's his incompetence and clownishness. One of my biggest pet peeves when people talk about Trump is a trope that I hear again and again and again, which is that, thank God he's stupid. Thank God he's lazy. Thank God he's a bad manager. Because if he was smart and organized, it would be so much worse. And I think that people who believe this have an idea of the way power works in history and politics that's based on media depictions and fictional narratives. Like Machiavelli, for
1: example, and Dick Puppet Strings.
2: Yeah, yeah. And also, I think a very profound misunderstanding of certain historical dictators, most obviously Hitler. I mean, there's this idea in people's minds that he was some kind of organizational genius, and that is really not true at all. Um, I think that clownishness, disorganized attitudes and uh, behaviors and incompetence, these are actually extremely dangerous characteristics, and they lead to all kinds of suffering and disaster. And- in a way, they are actually much more dangerous than this kind of organized Machiavellian dictatorship that people have in their mind. When you think about historical dictators and all the disasters that we associate with them, many of them are disasters of incompetence. I mean, in China, in Mao's China, most of the suffering was as a consequence of this kind of clownish mismanagement of the economy, right? How many people died because of the failed agricultural policies of the Great New Forward? Tens of millions of people, right? And if we also look at some of the genocides and disasters, you know, like the show of the Holocaust and then other ones in other parts of the world, I mean, this was not the consequence of detailed planning. This, these were the consequences of extreme snowballing radicalization and hate that got so out of control that much more suffering and violence was unleashed than anybody might have perceived at the beginning.
1: Joseph Stalin's failed five-year plan in Russia.
2: Yeah, yeah. And if you think about today living under a dictatorship, like if you live under Museveni in Uganda, what what makes it so awful? It's that public services are not functioning, uh, that you don't have access to uh, good infrastructure. It's that you don't have access to the, the health care and police protection and so on that you're able to expect from the government. It's this mismanagement. These are the traits that we associate with disastrous dictatorial leaders. You know, government is supposed to be about public service. And people like Donald Trump and Mark Meadows are so much like all of these you know, Robert Mugabe and and Museveni and so on, people who do not know how to provide for their people, who don't know how to manage the economy, who don't know how to run public services, because they're focused on all the wrong things in government, and they don't have managerial acumen. So this idea that we're saved by Trump's incompetence has always been fatally wrong. And understanding that Meadows and Trump are these ridiculously clownish and competent figures shouldn't make us comforted; it should scare us. You know, Meadows... One of the most famous sequences of his tenure as a COS was when Trump got COVID and Meadows was there in the hospital trying to organize the media and communication strategy in a way that was just completely ridiculous. There's video of him. What was it? You remember this, right? There's video of him on camera saying one thing and then saying the opposite and then saying, oh, can I take that back? It's off the record. And they had those pictures of Trump when he was all... Pale and they brought the cameras into the hospital room that entire disaster was all organized by this person. He gets back to the White House and he has to climb up the stairs and he's near death from from, from being out of breath and he can't actually talk <laughs> and these are the people who are literally literally pointing a loaded gun at the u s Congress when the us Congress is meant to be counting the electoral college votes right people who 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 don't know how to keep things within the guardrails in any way and can't control a rowdy mob. They're they're eager to just sick them on the Capitol and see what happens. So I will
1: just say this to double down on your point. Mark Meadows was the head of the Freedom Caucus when they were most prominent and he gets a lot of praise and he likes to think he was playing 40 chess. For whatever you think about Ted Cruz, folks, he's not an idiot. He may not be the greatest strategist, but he was the one driving the Freedom Caucus back then. He was the one holding the meetings in Tortilla Coast, coming over from the Senate, meeting with these House members, and really dictating strategy because he was a senator. And these freaks like Mark Meadows and Mick Mulvaney, for example, they just all wanted the power that Ted Cruz had, so they'd listen to him. The one thing I will say to John, as you are listing off these dictators, I'm thinking Hitler, I'm thinking Stalin, I'm thinking some, some of the others that you mentioned, What separates Trump from Meadows, and folks, Trump was smart enough to put in a plan to try and basically kill members of Congress and potentially the vice president to delay the transfer of power. So he was smart enough to at least go along with it. Um, But another characteristic, Trump is more intelligent than Meadows, but also throughout these dictators you mentioned, it's almost universal that all they need to do is to instill a Fanatical response in only maybe 10 or 15% of the population. In some cases, much fewer, like the 30,000 that stormed the Capitol. And Trump had the ability through his oration, through the way that he could play on schisms in our society, through the way he did the in group, out group dynamics, he played up hatred, he played up racism. He could bring people's emotions while giving a speech. To the next level. Similar to other great speakers uh, throughout history who've used them for mendacious means and and just evil, evil outcomes. So I think it's important to note that, John, because Meadows is just a bum. He doesn't have that ability.
2: Well, like I said, this all character revealing. I mean, five years ago, before we went through this whole experience, we couldn't necessarily have guessed which role all these different characters were going to play. I mean, we're talking about Michael Flynn and Rudy Giuliani, There's others too that played an unpredictable role that this experience revealed things about their character. I mean, Lindsey Graham is another good example, right? I could have told you this was Mark Meadows before he got into the White House. Indeed, indeed, indeed. But I I think what I mean to say is, you know, we're saying he's a bum, that he's dumb, that he ended up in this position by accident. People can do incredible amounts of damage under those circumstances, right? There are many people who are put in positions that they're not meant to be in, by coincidence or or fluke who end up causing all kinds of disaster and suffering. And so uh you know I'll just return to my point which is that do not underestimate the dangers of idiocy. <laughs> it it
1: kills I shouldn't be laughing. Um the other thing I'd like to say is there is the the right wing is like coming up and saying, oh, this didn't happen in the Secret Service in, in the truck with uh with Trump. We will say that while I don't want to speak for John, but I will, I think both of us find the testimony compelling. There's no reason for her to lie. She probably did hear that. There was a statement put out by the Secret Service today, about an hour ago before we started, saying that they will respond on the record to those claims. So that is one thing to just watch moving forward. If that's corroborated, then- That's pretty big news.
2: We'll see where the evidence leads. Uh, The Secret Service are an agency of the US government that have not necessarily had the best track record of transparency uh, in regard to controversial incidents in the past. I'm thinking back in Colombia. I'm thinking of a number of things, Justin. They like to party a little bit too much sometimes. If this is a he said, she said situation- too early to say that it'll be that anyway. You know, we'll see where the evidence leads us. But again, yes, the testimony was quite compelling. And it's only in addition to testimony that we've received from many other figures throughout this process. And I think that virtually all, if not all, of the witnesses that have appeared before the committee have been people who not only were Republicans, but in many cases were people that were the chosen and appointed very closely held staff members of many of the protagonists of the attack, including John Trump and Mark Meadows. Uh, You know, it's people like Cassie Hutchinson, who was the closest personal aide to Mark Meadows. Um, It's Bill Barr, who was the attorney general who was brought in as a fixer by Trump to clean up criminal investigations into him and his associates. It's, Figures who were legal advisors like Eric Hirschman, who helped defend Trump during the impeachment over his misconduct in regard to Ukraine. It's people that were still part of Trump's team and staff and administration in January of 2021. People who were there after the controversies in regards to the election lies. It's people who were there after the scandals and impeachment about Ukraine, it's people who stuck with him until the bitter end. These are the people who are providing this testimony. So I think that it is compelling. And another thing, you know, an overall observation that I've had about the hearing so far, that's connected to the point that I just made, is that these hearings are very much not an attack on the Republican Party as an institution. It was an ideologically driven political organization. It doesn't cast any aspersions whatsoever on the GOP. In fact, in some ways, it's like a love letter to the GOP. The way that these hearings have been conducted, you can tell very clearly that this is not focused on political gain for the 2022 elections. Instead, again and again and again, they return to the concept of the noble Republican. They've tried to create heroes out of figures that are popular, or at least until very recently were very popular among the Republican base, people like Mike Pence. They went as far as they possibly could to depict him in a noble way. With Rusty Bowers, they were asking him about his spiritual beliefs and his commitment to the conservative interpretation of the constitution. The Speaker of the Republican House in Arizona, folks, very conservative. And it wasn't even just him as a figure. It was the values, the conservative, uh, religious Christian values that they emphasized as they conducted these. They are trying so hard to give the Republican Party an off-ramp. They've turned the hearings into a celebration of the GOP And the ideological underpinnings of the conservative movement. And many of the interrogations are being conducted by Liz Cheney, a figure who voted with the Republican administration, the Republican leadership, more than almost any other member of the U.S. House. You were hearing exchanges during these that are one Republican asking Republicans questions and then responding. (laughs) It's the entire thing is developed as a way to give Republicans permission to say, oh no, you know what? We're so much better than Trump and it's time to move on. I agree with that. So I
1: just want to end with, where is Pat Cipollone? Why aren't you testifying? What are you hiding? It makes no sense to me. Maybe he will come forward. Maybe he has. Who knows?
0: That concludes today's conversation. Again, huge thanks to John and Justin and to you for being here. If you'd like to hear past episodes or sign up for our email newsletter, which will deliver our best of directly to your inbox, please visit our website, pm101.live. Please also take a second to subscribe on whichever streaming service you're using right now so you don't miss our next episode coming this Friday. This has been Politics and Media 101. Wherever you are in the world, thank you for being a part of this community. I'm Jeff Browning. On behalf of our co-founders, Justin Higgins and John Gunnison, we hope to hear from you soon.